invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin in a few minutes in verse 11. I love the song, Indescribable, but every time we sing it, I'm thinking that song should have no words. All right, some of you have to explain that on the way to lunch today. But that's the truth about God, right? And Acts says, how indescribable is this great God and His love for us. And yet we as humans are trying to put into words how to describe a God who's really indescribable. That has nothing to do with the message this morning. That's just where my random thinking went. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, we're picking back up in verse 11. We looked at verses 1 through 10 over the last couple of weeks. And we really come to a message this morning that's about the family of God. And unfortunately, the family of God is divided. And God wants to see unity happen in the family of God. You'll see cars drive down the roads of our area, and I'm sure every state in America, and it'll have a, a sign on the front that says, House Divided. Y'all seen those? That normally means in this state that you've got a South Carolina Gamecock fan and a Clemson Tiger fan in the same car, which is a miracle in and of itself. And, and maybe they're not even in the same car. It's just that's the one she drives, the one he drives, and they live in the same household. What we're looking at this morning is really a division more extreme than that. And if you think about what divides the church, you also think about what unites the church. So what unites the church? And let's not talk about the church universal, which is really the body of Christ, but I'm just talking about even where you attend church. I've seen some churches united around some things that weren't particularly Jesus. I've seen some churches that are united, I think, around softball. Because the only thing I see when I walk in the lobby is all these trophies for softball. And that's what people are talking about. Hey, what time's the game today? What time are we doing this? Now, is there anything wrong with softball? No, there's nothing inherently sinful about softball, but if that's what's uniting the church, that's a problem. Well, let's get off of that. <laughs> Some churches are united around the pastor. And, and it's not a bad thing to love your pastor. But the pastor can't be what unites the church, because what happens when the pastor leaves? The church falls apart if it's united around the pastor, or you follow the pastor wherever he goes. It could be... Music. What happens if you don't like the music? You go to find a church that you like the music. So if what's uniting the church is anything other than Jesus, it's united around artificial external things that really can't hold a church together. And that's part of Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed really three times in that passage that God would make his followers one. And so he's praying that for us. And that's what we get to in this passage that Paul writes to a church in Ephesus. Now keep in mind, he's writing to a church, he's really writing to a church, first of all, and, and not only is the church in Ephesus going to read this letter, but it's going to be read around that area. But it's predominantly believers. These are Christians that he's writing to, and the predominant area of, dis, of disunity is between the Jews and the Gentiles. So Jewish converts are in the church. Gentile converts are in the church. They're now believers, but there's disunity. So let's read the first part 
just the first couple of verses of Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentile in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at the, the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we find that word therefore starting this passage, and you know if you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for, right? Well, it's therefore the purpose of what he's just talked about for 10 verses. Ephesians 2 Verses 1 through 10 is an incredible passage. It starts just reminding them, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not, not of yourself. It's the gift of God. So when he says, therefore, he's pointing back to what he just talked about, which is really just one sentence in, in the passage, and he's about to make a point. He says, okay, because that's true, I want you to remember something. So I'm going to use two sides of the stage today. If I look over here, hopefully I'll remember to do this. This is your past. He's basically saying, look back. And he's reminded them of what the back looked like in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. The back wasn't pretty. The back is you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we're going to start with this look back. So what was true about them? Well, the Gentiles were, you were formerly Gentiles. And you had a name from the Jewish converts, and that is the uncircumcised. Now, I won't do a, a class on circumcision this morning. I'll leave that up to the youth leaders this afternoon. But that was a sign of the covenant. It was from God. God demanded that his people be circumcised. And it was a sign of the covenant that he had made with the nation of Israel. And so the Jews that came into the church didn't like the fact that these Gentile converts thinking now, hey, they're part of the family. They crashed the party. And Galatians is a lot about Paul having to write to the church in Galatia to say, you don't have to get circumcised just because these Jews come in and say you need to because you're adding something to the cross. And the cross is enough. What Jesus said on the cross is enough. Anything you add to it becomes an enemy of the cross. And so they had a name for them. The Jews spoke disparagingly of the Gentiles and called them the uncircumcised. You ever remember that happening before in the Old Testament? Remember David when he went up before Goliath? I love the story of David and Goliath. Here's this giant that is threatening and scaring the nation of Israel to death. Here comes this little kid, David, who's going to fight the giant. And the king puts all of his armor on him, and David can't even walk. He's like, no, I'm not fighting with this son. I'm just giving me a couple of rocks here, five rocks, and a sling. And he goes up in front of Goliath, and he says, you uncircumcised Philistine. You're no match for my God. So we've seen the phrase used before, but in this word, it's used, back then it was used disparagingly of Goliath. Here it's, used disparagingly of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You're of the class of the uncircumcised. And I like the way Paul puts it, and you're, you're being called that name by the so-called circumcised. In other words, the people who put, who put more weight in the mere formality of the covenant than they did the covenant itself. Rather than calling them names, the Jews should have been trying to convert 
the Gentiles to Judaism. Now that they've come to faith in Christ, they should be trying to convert Gentiles to Christianity. And yet they weren't doing that. They were making dividing marks between them. The, the division, the Jews hated the Gentiles. That's just the truth. And the truth is the Gentiles didn't care much for the Jews either. There's a lot of laws for the Jews. If you were a Jew and you saw a female Gentile giving birth, going into labor, about to give birth, you weren't allowed to help. If a Jew married a Gentile, let's say a Jewish man married a Gentile woman, the rest of your family would have a funeral because they saw it in the same light as death. If a Gentile entered your house as a Jew, you would be considered unclean. Or if you entered their house, you would be considered unclean. A lot of other things we know about the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. Well, now they've come to faith in Christ. All of that should have been left at the door. But it's not left at the door. It's brought inside. But here's what was true. In the look back of the Gentiles that Paul's writing to, first thing he says is, you were separated from Christ. Literally at a space or apart from. You were without Christ. A lot of what he's going to say in Ephesians is, this happens when you are in Christ. He's even going to use that phrase in this passage. To be in Christ means you're now a believer, you're a follower. What he's saying is, in your past, you weren't in Christ. You were at a distance from Christ. Second thing that he says, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't part of the nation of Israel. You weren't part of the family of God. You were estranged. You were a non-participant. You were separated and estranged. The third thing he says is, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. One of the things he said is, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And he's, one of the symbols of that covenant was circumcision. But the covenant was way bigger than this fleshly act that a man did. And they were missing the whole point. Literally, you're strangers. You're a foreigner. And you have no share of it. The Gentiles didn't have any covenant to have hope in. And so the fourth thing he says is you have no hope. You literally are hopeless. You have no confident expectations. You have no confidence in the future. In fact, for a Gentile, they believed either one of two things when you died. They either believed you died and you just ceased to exist, which is annihilation. Some people believe that today. Or when you died, your soul or spirit was released into eternity to wander aimlessly for the rest of eternity. How does that sound? I, I don't like A or B. What's C? A is you just are annihilated. B is you wander aimlessly for the rest of eternity, which is forever and ever and ever and ever. It never stops. Well, there is an option C, and it is Jesus, and we'll get to that in a minute. So you're separated from Christ. You're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You're strangers to the covenants of promise. You have no hope. Hope is a profound blessing. Let me just go ahead and say this. If you think this is all there is, you better live it up now. That's kind, of the, that's kind of the mantra of the world. Grab for the gusto. Grab it for all it's worth. Because if this is it, then this is it. Some think this is as good as it's ever going to be. Let me tell you something. This isn't your best life now. 
there's a better life coming. As a believer, I have a hope. I have a hope in the future. I have a hope that things can be better on this planet, but certainly after this, after death, I'm going to spend eternity with God in a place called heaven that he's been preparing for me and for you as his followers. That's the hope we have as believers. Think about as a Gentile, before you came to faith in Christ, you were, you were hopeless. In fact, you were hopeless without God in the world. Without God. You were godless. Let me teach you one Greek word today, because you already know it. The word for without God is the word atheos. Does that sound familiar? Atheos. Atheist. That's what he's saying. You were an atheist. You had no hope. Now, did they have gods? Oh, yeah. In the Greek culture, they had a lot of gods. They had a lot of gods that had real human characteristics. They weren't particularly pretty. They weren't particularly gracious or graceful. In fact, if you were following them, you, you spent your entire life hoping you made them happy. And there was no grace. You did things, you brought things, you bowed and scraped, you did all this hoping that somehow you're going to make this God that you created yourself happy. And so Paul says, you're without hope in the world because you were godless. You had no hope. Well, that's what happens when you look back. And I don't want you to spend a lot of time looking back, but think about your life. Every now and then you can glance at your past. But when I say glance, the only reason we spend any time glancing at the past is to remind ourselves of how good God is. So when Paul says, remember where you came from, he's already helped him with that in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead. But the sermon doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. Paul's writing doesn't end there. So whatever you see when you look back, Only glance there. Gaze at God. Spend the rest of your life gazing intently into the beauty, the glory, the majesty of the indescribable God. So we've looked back. The next thing we do is look up. The psalmist, David, said, where does my help come from? I look to the hills. That was just, he lifted his eyes to the heavens. And he says, I look up. That's where my help comes from. So let's look at verses 13 through 18. Follow along on the screen with me or in your scripture. So they've remembered, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, so that through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. But now, Here's what God has done. We look up. And so you need to spend a little bit of time. Quit looking back. Start looking up and see what God has done. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off, you were estranged, you were without God, you were separated, far off. 
had been brought near. You didn't come near. He brought you near. And he did it through the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for you and for me, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But because he shed his blood, and I trust Christ as my Lord and Savior, I can be forgiven for all that junk that was in the past. I'm no longer a stranger or an alien. In fact, he has made both groups into one. He is our peace. The word peace means to be set at one again. We were at war. We're now at peace. The Gentiles had never experienced that. They had never experienced peace with their God because it didn't exist. They didn't have a God. And all those gods that they created, hoping to make things better, didn't work. But in Christ, they have peace. And he's made both groups into one. So he's taken the Jewish people who have their background, the Gentile people who have their background, he's made them into one body. And what's that body called? It's called the church. The called out ones, the ecclesia. It's the church. And he did it through his death on the cross. So he's brought us near. He's made both groups into one. And then I love this. He broke down the barrier. He broke down the dividing wall. You need to know something about the temple in Jerusalem. They had walls in the temple. They had courts of the women. They had courts of the Gentiles. And only the Jewish men could enter into the temple proper. And only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. And only then once a year. They had a wall for Gentiles with a sign on it that said, you're forbidden to pass from this point. In fact, you will be responsible for your own death if you go any further than this wall. Now, why did they have that kind of wall there? God had the wall there to bring Gentiles near. It should have been a place for evangelism. It should have been a place where the Jewish nation proselytized, shared the truth about their God with these people, but they didn't do that. They left the dividing wall up. So Paul says when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the dividing wall. He did it figuratively at the cross. A few years later in AD 70, it was literally happened because the whole temple was destroyed. And I think about dividing walls in the church. I wonder about dividing walls in our churches today. I've seen some. One wasn't a wall, but it, a figurative wall. It was, or a literal wall. It was a figurative wall. Preached at a church in King William, Virginia, and it was a church that was about 200 years old. And it had a little spiral staircase in the back of the church that went upstairs, and there was a balcony, and you couldn't really see the people in the balcony. The people in the balcony couldn't see. And I said, what is this? They said, well, that's the slave balcony. So at one point in time in the history of Virginia, they had churches where the slave owners didn't mind the slaves coming to church. They just didn't want to see them. It was a dividing wall. Let me tell you something. In Christ, there's no place for that. There's no place for that for between Jew and Gentile. There's no place for that between the races, ethnicities. We're one in Christ. What about your church? Probably not a racial dividing wall. Hopefully not. But if there's anything that keeps you from fellowship with others, maybe financially, maybe you look down your nose on people who don't dress quite like you do. Be careful. Be careful that we don't put up little dividing walls in our church today because they certainly had them in the days of Christ. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he obliterated things that separated us. The ground at the cross was level. 
we're all on the same playing field. One's not above the other. One's not below the other. So he's broke down that dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, the reason for opposition that happened at the cross. The, the hostility, the opposition, the reason for it was taken away at the cross because it was sin. So that he might make the two into one. In the case that Paul's talking about, the Jewish followers and the Gentile followers are now part of the body of Christ. No longer Jew and Gentile, they're now what? Christians. Because he's put to death the enmity that separated them. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. Jesus preached peace to both groups. The Jews were near. The Gentiles were far away. This is an Old Testament promise that that's what Jesus would come and do. And here's some good news. Now we both have access to the Father because of what Jesus did on the cross. In fact, the word that he uses here for access in this language would be the same word they would use of the guy in the temple or the guy in the king's court who you would come and talk to and he would usher you into the presence of the king. He was the access. Well, what's our access to God now? Let me tell you something. It's not your good works. It's not that you come into the presence of God and say, look what I've done, because it's never good enough. How do we have access now? We have access now through the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what Jesus did on the cross. We look up and see what God's already done through Christ. And so now we have access, no longer strangers. Last thing, take a look around. We've taken a look back. You see what your life was like? You've taken a look up to see what God has done. Verses 19 and following, let me read them, is where we take a look around and see the present of what we're living in now. So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There's that word again, so then. So it's a transition because of what's true that, that Paul's already talked about. So then. Take a look at what is true. Now, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer foreigners. You ever been somewhere and somebody looked at you and said, you're not from around here, are you? I don't know if you know this or not, but when I'm in other parts of the country, they think I have an accent. I was at a place in California ordering. We, several of us were ordering at this fast food place standing at the counter. And the girl behind the counter just said, I love the way you talk. I'm like, sorry, I didn't know I talked a certain way. I'm from the South. Forgive me. Then somebody ordered sweet tea. She said, sweet tea, what's that? I'm like, it could be a blessing for your life. 
So as we placed our order, and she said, you want some ketchup with that? So I said, ketchup? What's that? But if people in this area come in and say, I love your accent, I say, I don't have an accent. This is the way people from South Carolina and Georgia and North Carolina and Virginia, this, area, this is the way we talk. You've got the accent. Now, you're welcome here, but don't make fun of the way we talk. You're not from around here. Coming out of Bethlehem one time, I was on a tour bus. They're taking a tour of the Holy Land, and we, we get to this checkpoint coming back into Israel from the West Bank. And this guy, he looked like he was about 12, but he had an Uzi. Got on in uniform. He said, let me see your passports. Well, we, some of us had our passports, some of us didn't. About 30 of us on the bus. And so I told the guy, I said, well, not everybody has their passports. And you could just see what went through his eyes. He's like, uh-oh, I wish I hadn't asked for that. What I do now? So he said, let me see your faces. So he just walked down the aisle of the bus, checking us out. I guess at the end he's like, yeah, they ain't from around here. He let us go. <laughs> well, in Christ, you're no longer a stranger. You're not from somewhere else. You don't find other believers and them say, you ain't from around here. Because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Look around. You're not, no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens. You're natives of the same town. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I love this. You're of God's household. I don't know if you've ever figured that out, but if you've come to faith in Christ, you're now a part of the family of God. And He doesn't have any second-class citizens. He doesn't have anybody sneaking in the back door hoping they're going to get in. When you see God face-to-face, -face, it's welcome, my good and faithful servant. You're my child. Come into the kingdom. And God's household is built on the foundation. The foundation, the chief cornerstone is Jesus. The apostles and the prophets have built on that. You're now built on that. But it all goes back to Jesus, who's the cornerstone. The whole building fits together. He takes the weight of the building. He's the one that directs the building of the building. And you're part of the building because you're now part of the body of Christ, the church. So you're part of the family of God who's built together into a dwelling of God. Here's the cool thing about that. The dwelling of God for the Jews was a temple that for hundreds of years sat on a hill in Jerusalem. And no matter which direction you came from, you looked up to Jerusalem because it was on a hill. You could be coming from the north, the south, the east, or the west. You're, you had to travel up, and the temple was at the pinnacle, and you could see it for miles and miles around. And here's what they thought about the temple. That's where God is. That's where God resides. Well, now where does God reside? It isn't in this building. It's not back in some brick-and-mortar building that you worship out on Sundays. You are now the temple. You're the temple of God. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life, and you're part of God's family. So here's the question. Is that the truth about you? If you look back on your life, can you look back at a day where you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? And regardless of what the junk was in your life, what separated you from God, the sin that was there, have you come to the cross and been forgiven? Because that's the offer. 
of God today. And what you get when you get forgiven is what Paul has described in the last part of chapter 2 of Ephesians. And if you're here today, I may not know your name, but if you're a child of God, you and I are brothers, for you're my sister. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that truth. God, how hopeless it would be to be as Paul described the Gentiles without God, without hope. Thank you that you have brought hope and you brought hope in the person of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for me because I owed something. I had a debt and I couldn't pay it. There was nothing I could do to remove it. But because of what Christ did at the cross, I'm now forgiven and I'm part of the family of God. Praise God for that in Jesus' name.